Welcome to your new favorite podcast, OMLS, with your host, Aryaman Varma. Here, Aryaman chats with religious leaders, economists, and modern philosophers to help shine a light on the dark corners of economics and religion. So without any further ado, let's kick off this episode. Welcome to OMLS. I'm Aryaman Varma, your host, and today we're joined by a distinguished expert, Peter Hood. Mr. Hood is a counsel at King & Spalding, specializing in public international law, ESG, and business and human rights. He has represented states and businesses in some of the most significant cases in his field. Today, he'll be sharing his expertise and shedding light on critical issues at the heart of global business ethics. Right, to get started then, could you share your background and personal journey and how that has led you to where you now are? I went to uh, join a firm of solicitors, Hogan Lovells, um, and I qualified into a, a group that primarily did international disputes and international arbitration, uh, which was largely of a, a commercial nature. Got involved in a, a very large uh, war crimes case uh, and realized that this is the, the area of law that I was particularly interested in um, and started to build a practice around that, both doing uh, international criminal law and international human rights law disputes, but also um, advisory work uh, for businesses in relation to human rights issues in their operations and uh, their value chains and supply chains, a particular focus on um, uh, human rights in situations of armed conflict. Um, and I went off and, and uh, moved to Uganda for a while and did various grassroots human right. rights projects there. Uh, taught law in a maximum security prison in Kampala for a year um, and, and did, a, did some further study, did an LLM in, in public international law. Uh, then I, I spent a while at the Foreign Office where I was a, a specialist advisor on, on public international law and um, part of my portfolio was uh, international human rights law. So I was one of the agents for the United Kingdom at the European Court of Human Rights and, and was the lead on, on the main uh, climate change case at the ECHR, the Duarte Agostinho case, which sure. remains highly topical and, and something that's of real interest to a lot of our, our clients in, in private practice. Um, also worked on international refugee law um, and did some work on uh, international human rights law as it applies to businesses, so business and human rights and, and modern slavery. Um, after that, I, I joined King and Spalding, um, so I moved back into to private practice along with Ben Emerson, KC, who's a, a very distinguished uh, international lawyer uh, and who's building up a practice at, at King and Spalding, uh, specialising in public international law. And since then, my, my focus has really been on, on two areas: so I have, uh, public international law disputes. So we, we act for the government of Ukraine uh, against the government of Russia in relation to. Um, the human rights abuses that uh, have been committed by Russians and Russian proxy forces in eastern Ukraine and Crimea since 2014, um, and various related cases, um, some cases involving state immunity, um, uh, climate change, um, uh, various international disputes in, in that realm. And then also, and, and this is the area um, I think you're, you're perhaps most interested in, uh, business and human rights advisory work, so working with multinational clients on um, how they identify and address human rights issues in their operations and supply chains and downstream value chains. Sure, sure. That is uh, tr- truly incredible and truly um, extensively widespread. It's incredible. Um, but 
I remember you just talking about how you worked in a maximum security prison. I'm just fascinated to just know a bit more about that. How was that? Must have been a very, uh, was it a weird experience? What was it like? It was deeply weird. Yes, it was a, a very um, unusual institution. Um, so it was kind of all of the things you might expect a Ugandan high security prison to be. It was really overcrowded. The, the conditions in which the prisoners lived um, were not great and not equivalent to the, the conditions that they would live in in a prison in the UK. Um, but it was this fascinating uh, microcosm of society and a, a self-functioning economy. Um, so, for example, there was a, a, a replica of the Premier League where there were 20 teams, was oh. Newcastle United and Manchester United, um, and players would uh, transfer between those teams for really quite considerable sums of money. And the quality of the, <laughs> the football that they played was really, really very high. So I sometimes used to get to watch these football matches when I went. And also having, having had a bit of a, a background in teaching uh, and teaching in a school where sometimes I struggle to get children to pay attention to what <laughs> I, I want them to learn. Uh, you really could not have asked for uh, a more attentive uh, audience uh, and group of students because in Uganda, there is no legal aid system. So uh, lots of these prisoners were learning the law because they wanted to represent themselves um, in appeal hearings uh, and it was their ticket to freedom. Uh, so they were really desperate to learn uh, and fantastic students. And, and I made some really good good friends, both with students and, and prison officers who were also enrolled on the course, um, uh, who I've stayed in touch with since. Sure. And uh, what actually motivated you or inspired you to A, work in a prison and B, specifically in Uganda? Well, so I, I was in Uganda for other reasons, actually, um, largely for personal reasons. But my wife runs a, a network of schools in Uganda and it was right, useful okay. for her to be there. Uh, and I thought that there were various useful things I could do in Uganda. So I, I did various other projects, more on the business and human rights side, actually, like capacity building projects with... Uh, the Global Compact Local Network and uh, Federation of Ugandan Employers and, and things like that on, on building capacity on human rights due diligence. Um, so I had various projects like that and I was studying and, and working remotely while I was there. Um, but I really wanted to do something where I was engaging directly with rights holders. And, um, and, and so I took this, this opportunity through it's a, an established charity, the African Prisons Project, um, who run the program and, and enroll the uh, students on the law degree at the University of London. And, uh, and so I, I taught on that program and it was, it was great. I really enjoyed it. Sure. Uh, and right. Child labor is obviously a pressing global issue. Could you provide some context on the current state of child labor worldwide and what regions or industries are most affected? Sure. So child labor is a, an absolutely endemic problem in the global economy. Um, according to the International Labour Organization, there are 160 million children in child labour. Um, 79 million of them are involved in, in hazardous work. So um, as you might know, there are certain forms of uh, work which are acceptable for under 18s to carry out, provided that the number of hours are limited and that the conditions are right for uh, children, that it doesn't interfere with their schooling. But there are some forms of, of labour that shouldn't be carried out by anyone under the age of 18. So um, particularly they are uh, forms of labour that would uh, harm the health or, or morals of children. 
Um, and that's defined slightly differently in, in different countries. But uh, the type of uh, work that, that children shouldn't be doing in any circumstances is, is working with uh, dangerous machinery, working at heights, working underground, uh, working excessively long hours. Um, and so 79 million children uh, are, are working in, in hazardous work. Um, now, the, the highest prevalence of child labour is in sub-Saharan Africa, where as many as 24% um, of children uh, are engaged in some form of child labour. Um, the, the prevalence is lower in other regions. Um, so in North America and Europe, it's about 2.5%, um, which relative to 25% sounds very low, but actually we're talking there about, you know, uh, more than one in 50 children right. in Europe and North America experiencing some form of child labour. So it's still a very significant problem that affects, uh, in absolute terms, a very large number of children. Sure. Um, obviously, it's an extremely worrying and concerning issue. And how, how do firms actually improve? What are some like common challenges that businesses face in understanding and implementing human rights practices in their operations and supply chains? Yeah, so obviously human rights issues um, that businesses might affect in their operations or through their uh, value chain, their products and services, they range more broadly than, than just child labour. Child labour is one uh, particular form of, of uh, human rights impact, but uh, businesses need to be aware of a, a much wider range of human rights issues. Um, but to your particular question, your specific question, for some companies, complacency is a challenge. So uh, a company that operates in, in the UK or in Western Europe, you might look around at your colleagues in the office, uh, at your day-to-day -day work and think, well, I mean, th there's no question of any child laborers being affected by what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. There's no, no question of human rights abuses taking place in my working environment or being connected to the, the products and services that uh, our, our business uh, developed. But the reality is that Human rights issues, including child labour, are so endemic in the global economy that almost every business is affected um, by uh, human rights issues. And almost every business has some form of connection to a human rights issue, whether that's through its supply chain, through its own operations or through the use of its products or services. So the, one of the first challenges is uh, how do you address that complacency and how do you sure. raise awareness uh, amongst people who work in those businesses? Once businesses engage, then it could be difficult to know where to start because actually the scope of the international standards on, on business and human rights are really broad and they require businesses to look throughout their value chain at the whole range of human rights issues. And that, that at first can be a very daunting task. Uh, and businesses often also struggle with the challenge of, well, how far do you go in identifying and addressing those human rights issues? Do I need to go to uh, tier nine of my supply chain? Right. Um, if I buy a computer from Apple, do I need to be concerned about whether there's forced labor in Apple's right. Right. Uh, supply chain? Or, or can I uh, rely on the fact that they're a reputable company that will have done due diligence themselves? And I think the, the key to addressing both of those challenges is uh, is found really in, a, in an application of the, the international standards that come from the UN guiding principles. So you start by mapping your business and operations and identifying potential human rights issues 
and being open to the the input of external human rights experts and also affected rights holders and, and their proxies, whether that's trade unions or NGOs, uh, as to uh, where those human rights issues lie within your value chain, your operations. And then once you've done that mapping exercise, it's a question of prioritizing and focusing on what are the most salient human rights issues. What are those issues that pose the, the greatest risk to rights holders? and then prioritizing those for a program of action and putting into place um, practical mechanisms to uh, prevent those human rights issues from arising in the first place and also ensuring that there's a, a remediation program in place so that if a human rights issue does arise, then um, the rights holder can be put back into the position that they would have been in uh, had it not been for the, the breach. Right, you, you mentioned Apple uh, and it raises an interesting point. How should consumers um, sort of not protest, but raise awareness um, for, you know, human rights and just child labor generally? Should they stop consuming products that may potentially have been uh, involved child labor in the production process? So how, how should consumers react? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously the short answer is yes. I mean, if you're an ethical <laughs> consumer, then you, you shouldn't be buying products that you know are made with child labor or associated with other um, egregious human rights issues. But the answer is, is actually a bit more complex than that, because um, as I said before, human rights issues are so endemic in the global economy that every company who is honest and who is transparent will face human rights issues. And really what is required and what makes an, an ethical company uh, is that you engage openly with that and that you're proactive and tireless in uh, the mechanisms that you put in place to address those issues um, and that you're honest about the reality of uh, how widespread human rights issues are in, in the global economy and how that can affect your business. So you shouldn't necessarily assume that because a company has never been associated with the child labor scandal, for example, then it is a responsible company. And, and actually, if you really want to uh, get into the weeds and uh, determine which are those ethical companies that are doing the most to address uh, human rights issues in their operations and value chains, then you should look at some of the, um, the rankings that are available. So, for example, in the garment sector, there's a, a ranking called Know the Chain, uh, which scores businesses on the basis of their uh, human rights due diligence policies and their implementation and practice taking into account the extent to which they um, listen to the voice of rights holders, take on board feedback that comes through grievance mechanisms and remediation mechanisms. Right. And then more, more broadly, there's the corporate human rights benchmark, which uh, scores companies in a number of sectors. So you should look at what companies are doing rather than just the absence of any um, scandal. Sure. And uh, I think in May 2019, you discussed the implications of the UK Supreme Court's decision in Vedanta for the management of human rights risk and overseas operations. Mm. Can you summarize the main takeaways um, from that experience? Sure. So um, the, the Vedanta case was a, a very important case um, in the field of business and human rights. Um, and in, in summary terms, what it did was establish or clarify the fact that uh, a company which is in the UK, domiciled in the UK, uh, can owe a duty of care to people who are affected by 
the operations of its overseas subsidiaries uh, and potentially also its suppliers, where it holds itself out in um, public materials uh, as exercising a duty of care. So where a company, for example, puts in its annual sustainability report that they are one company worldwide and that they've got a suite of uh, policies which are aimed at ensuring that uh, no environmental harm occurs throughout its operations and supply chain or that there's no forced labour throughout its operations and supply chain. And the company fails to put in place the mechanisms that it, it says it has. Then victims of an adverse human rights impact or an environmental impact wherever they are located, uh, can potentially bring a, a, a claim in England against the parent company under traditional um, principles of tort law. Um, and so this has led to a series of subsequent cases um, which have been brought against uh, British companies or multinational companies who have a, a significant presence in the UK, um, for example, in relation to forced labour in the supply chain. It's a pending case against British American Tobacco. Uh, also in relation to um, conditions on, on ship breaking yards in Bangladesh and whether the shipping company can be uh, held, held accountable. Um, so it, it was a, a significant case. It, it, it didn't create new law. Uh, the Supreme Court was very cautious to say, really, this is just a clarification of existing tort law principles, but uh, it, it certainly cleared the path and removed some of the obstacles that uh, claimants who uh, weren't domiciled in the UK and suffered uh, environmental or human rights impacts at, at the hands of a, a foreign subsidiary of a um, UK company faced to bringing a claim. Right. And child labour and just generally human rights issues um, are often used for profit sake and for maximizing profit. And so how can businesses effectively balance profit making goals whilst maintaining their environmental and social responsibilities? Yeah, well, I suppose that the first point is that uh, I wouldn't necessarily assume that the two um, are incompatible, uh, or that they necessarily pull in opposite directions. So uh, a company that has a supply chain that is riddled with forced labor and child labor has uh, a vulnerable supply chain. That's a supply chain which right. is susceptible to shocks, um, which wouldn't affect a supply chain which was more um, responsibly managed. Um, a, a company that has poor labour practices that fall short of the international standards on, on labour rights has a workforce that will not necessarily be as productive as a workforce um, which uh, has a, a, an employer that meets those those standards. So I, I don't think the assumption that um, employing children, engaging in forced labor necessarily leads to long-term uh, reduction in cost is, is necessarily a safe assumption. That's a kind of a, a non-legal answer. Um, the other point is that there is very real harm, both reputationally and increasingly legally for a company being associated with human rights issues in its supply chain or its own, own operations. Um, and there's no shortage of examples of, of companies that have been adversely affected by that type of scandal uh, in the public eye. Um, what's increasingly happening is the uh, investors, shareholders are uh, shining a light on uh, a failure to put into place adequate human rights due diligence programs uh, and holding management accountable for that. And in some cases, divesting 
or refusing to make an investment because they don't feel like it's a safe investment because uh, the company doesn't have the, the necessary safeguards in place. So there's also, I think, a, a commercial driver. Um, then increasingly, there is also legal risk. Uh, so there's a, a raft of new legislation coming into force across Europe, lots of which has extraterritorial effect, right. according to which companies can be held uh, legally accountable uh, for failing to put in place adequate human rights due diligence. So uh, where 20 years ago, this might have been seen as being a kind of optional nice to have, Sure. Uh, increasingly, that option isn't available, even where companies aren't necessarily persuaded by the um, moral or commercial arguments in favour of addressing human rights in the operations and supply chain. Sure. I think I think it was quite important to address the presumption that you know having child labour necessarily leads to increased profit. Um, but you know, with the exciting prospect and development of AI, how do you see the intersection of technology and human rights evolving? Um, well, I mean, it's a, it's a huge question. Obviously, the development of AI raises all sorts of um, human rights issues. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, to what extent does uh, the developer of the technology, uh, to what extent are they responsible for human rights abuses that uh, follow from the uh, unintended consequences of the use of their technology? Uh, to what extent should uh, the technology companies that uh, support that technology be held responsible? What steps should they put in, uh, should they take and what measures should they put in place uh, to prevent that from happening? Now, I think we're, we're still in a bit of a regulatory vacuum on questions like that. There are pieces of legislation coming into force in various different uh, jurisdictions which look to regulate the um, development of AI. Um, and I think that in that vacuum, businesses can actually take uh, a lot of comfort from uh, applying a human rights lens to the development of AI. Uh, and so uh, to identifying what the potential issues are and then following a program of looking to uh, prevent or cease those issues uh, and build that into the software. So I, th I think that there is a real benefit to taking a, a, a human rights approach to the development of the AI. Um, particularly until there is clearer regulation in the area. And I think there's also a kind of misconception that this is an issue which only really affects the tech sector. Um, there's lots of multinationals that are developing their own generative AI, for example, uh, and using it uh, for HR purposes yeah. uh, or for procurement purposes. Uh, and that is fraught with potential human rights issues. So, for example, the, the selection bias that might be built into that uh, technology on the, the basis of the data that's selected and the assumptions that are written into the algorithm. Uh, and that can have very real human rights impacts in terms of uh, diversity and equality in the workplace if uh, it's not carefully anticipated and if steps aren't taken to uh, build in the safeguards that are necessary. Essentially, there are going to be a lot of cases on your hand. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I know you're quite interested in the auto industry and electric vehicles. Could you elaborate on some of the human rights issues associated with electric vehicles? Sure. So um, there's been a commitment by a number of automotive companies to transition to a fully electric future. Uh, it means that all of those companies are competing for scarce resources uh, in terms of the critical minerals that are required uh, to build the batteries. Um, and a lot of those 
critical minerals are located in jurisdictions with very poor human rights records. So, for example, cobalt, the vast majority of the world's cobalt is located in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, which, for all intents and purposes, doesn't really have a functioning government uh, and where there are very few protections for human rights under uh, domestic law. Uh, so there is a very clear supply chain human rights risk associated with the transition towards electric vehicles. And those automotive companies are starting to take proactive measures to address that risk. So putting in place mechanisms to ensure that there is no child labor and no forced labor in the mine sites in the Congo. Um, there are also various auto companies that are taking equity stakes in um, the suppliers of battery raw materials or battery raw minerals. And, and when they do that, that brings with it a, a set of different responsibilities on um, how you influence that company to ensure um, that it has itself uh, in place the necessary systems and processes to minimize the, the risk of um, adverse human rights impact. So there, there is a kind of a tension, I think, between um, reducing carbon emissions and transitioning to electric vehicles in a, in a green future and um, maintaining a commitment to human rights and, and human rights in the supply chain. And uh, it's not impossible to resolve that tension, but it is, it's difficult and it requires really careful and thoughtful engagement. Sure. I, I actually think I remember reading an article from the FT about this um, and it said that informal workers produce, I think, almost a third of Congo's uh, cobalt, which is obviously very yes. concerning. Um, but given your experience on issues of extraterritorial jurisdiction, could you share some insights into how businesses navigate uh, this complex legal landscape? Yeah, so, I mean, I can only really speak to um, the issue of extraterritorial jurisdiction in relation to uh, business and human rights. Yeah. Um, and it is, a, it is a concern for businesses that they might face um, a regulatory requirement in a third state, that's a state where they're not domiciled, um, perhaps because they're doing business there, perhaps because they've got sales there, uh, which will trigger some form of reporting requirement or which will require them to put in place a human rights due diligence program. And this is something we're seeing a lot at the moment with uh, US companies who are gonna be caught by the new EU regulation that's coming into to force right. in, in the area of human rights generally and uh, corporate cool. sustainability. Um, I think in the business and human rights space, there's a relatively easy answer to how you address that uncertainty. And that is that really all of the legislation that's coming into force, whether it's at an EU level, whether it's in Germany or Norway, um, it all comes back to um, the fundamental you know, guiding principles on, on business and human rights. So these are, are voluntary standards and principles um that have been around for over a decade and which a lot of uh, large businesses are already using to uh, build their own human rights due diligence programs um so where a business has in in place a human rights due diligence program that meets those standards really it doesn't have to worry about extraterritorial jurisdiction in relation to to human rights because the same standard will underpin the legislation wherever it comes into force so building a, a human rights due diligence program which meets those standards enables it to meet various different regulatory requirements so you can have 
one central set of systems and processes which allows you to mitigate the risk of you know falling foul of the Norwegian Transparency Act but also it's the same set of systems and processes that you need to comply with the corporate sustainability due diligence directive and essentially the same set of procedures that you need to report on for the purposes of the modern slavery act in the uh, UK and Australia and uh, and now New Zealand um, and a new legislation in Canada so this kind of um, emergence of an array or a, a tapestry of new uh, pieces of human rights due diligence legislation with extraterritorial effect can really be mitigated by that proactive approach and applying the international standards. Right, that's very interesting. Um, and I think a few years ago, you discussed the idea for UK failure to prevent mechanism for corporate human rights harms. Could you just elaborate on the potential benefits and challenges of implementing such legislation? Sure. So. That project arose in the context of um, real uncertainty, real legal uncertainty facing British businesses, um, because there were a small number of companies who had meaningfully implemented the voluntary international standards that I was just referring to, and um, were publishing their human rights policies, they were publishing their human rights reports. Um, and those companies were the primary targets for. Um, civil causes of action, because there is no bespoke mechanism for uh, holding businesses accountable for a human rights harm in the UK. That's still the case. Uh, There's no mandatory human rights due diligence regulation. So um, claims were being brought by uh, victims of human rights harms against those companies that were arguably doing the most. And that was having a real uh, chilling effect on the willingness of businesses to voluntarily implement human rights due diligence and voluntarily to uh, be transparent and, and publicize what they were doing. Um, and we kept hearing anecdotally from our clients uh, that this was the case. And we kept hearing the, the cry for uh, clearer and more consistent regulation. And so it's a real, um, I think, a, a common misconception that businesses don't want regulation in this area. What they want actually is clear and consistent regulation, which creates a level playing field. And it felt like the situation back in 2019 was kind of doing the opposite. It was a real policy dysfunction. So we worked with the the British Institute of International and Comparative Law on a, a feasibility study for a proposed legislative mechanism that might address that dysfunction. Um, and we modelled it on um, a mechanism called the failure to prevent uh, mechanism under the UK Bribery Act. Um, and so unlike the, the new pieces of European mandatory human rights due diligence legislation that are coming into force uh, at the moment, uh, it didn't compel a business um, as a matter of uh, regulation. It didn't compel a business to put in place a human rights due diligence programme. But rather it created, or it would if it was ever adopted, created um, a a statutory duty uh, to prevent an adverse human rights impact. Right. And that's obviously in and of itself a very broad duty uh, and would create almost like a form of strict liability. Um, so to create uh, legal certainty, it was coupled or proposed to be coupled with a, a defense of adequate uh, procedures. So where a business could demonstrate that it had in place adequate human rights due diligence, uh, then that would operate as a um, as a defence 
uh, to a claim which was brought uh, for uh, against the company for a, a failure to prevent an adverse human rights impact. And so I, I still think that that mechanism has a lot to offer because unlike the um, mandatory human rights due diligence mechanisms, I think it would encourage businesses to take a, a more expansive approach to right. human rights due diligence, not to take a kind of tick box approach, but instead the, the more conservative legal option becomes to do more, to do more human rights due diligence, to have a better human rights due diligence program, uh, because you want to ensure that you would be able to benefit from uh, this defense of adequate procedures. I also think from a, a rights holders perspective, it would provide the opportunity to bring claims against those companies who are doing nothing. Um, and it would refocus attention away from those companies who are, are trying and being transparent to those companies who really uh, don't do anything and, um, and and don't necessarily care about human rights issues. So, so it would refocus attention and, and create a tool for rights holders to bring claims against the, the worst offenders of corporate human rights abuses. Um, and so this mechanism is obviously not a law, so uh, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it, it, and there's no suggestion in the manifestos of the two major political parties that it will be anytime soon. But it is something that, that continues to have some currency. So uh, it was included in, in various iterations of um, the UN uh, draft binding uh, instrument for business and human rights. Um, it was included in a, a law commission report in a kind of watered down form uh, last year uh, and it is something which continues to generate some policy and academic debate I mean I, I think the big drawback and the, the thing that uh, perhaps stops it getting traction is that it looks like a very frightening and onerous duty it looks uh, like it's going to be something which is really anti-business because it creates such a, a, a wide duty um, uh, but the reality is that when it's coupled with the, the defence, much as it's operated in the anti-bribery and corruption sphere, uh, there is increased legal certainty and companies who are implementing human rights due diligence according to best practice and according to the international standards would be able to benefit from that defence. So, so would have some uh, greater legal certainty and comfort. Right, yeah, I, I do agree that it would offer a more expansive approach than just simply a sort of checklist approach. Uh, but I have a rather interesting question for you. Which country do you think uh, has the best policy uh, in place on human rights, the best laws? Um, well, so the, the country that has the most expansive human rights due diligence law is Norway. Um, and I th their, their legislation is drafted very simply. And effectively, it just says that any company that comes within the threshold must implement human rights due diligence in accordance with the OECD guidelines, which are uh, consistent with the UN guiding principles. Um, and this uh, relatively small company and this relatively simple piece of legislation has had a major impact on the global economy because um, Norway has such a large oil and gas sector. Right. Um, basically every oil and gas company, every energy company, uh, international energy company has a presence in Norway, which means that it meets the threshold to comply with this legislation. So it, it certainly catalyzed action amongst those companies, but also those companies then started to push down um, that responsibility and those obligations onto their suppliers. 
So there are um, companies that have no connection to Norway whatsoever, um, who all of a sudden were being told that as a condition of being able to tender for a contract with one of these oil and gas majors, they needed to demonstrate that they had in place a human rights due diligence program that met the international standards. And so again, that catalyzed um, real activity amongst companies who have got no legal exposure, but for whom um, the commercial uh, disadvantage of not being able to bid for that work was such that they um, put in place a, a, a human rights due diligence program voluntarily. So I, I think the Norwegian model is is a smart model and an effective model. It's also a model that doesn't require um, massive amounts of uh, state resources for right. oversight. Yeah. Um, the, the, the EU is uh, simultaneously developing uh, the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, and it is likely that that will come into force across the European Union in the next, let's say, five years, although um, it's, it's still going through the um, negotiation amongst the, the trilog. Um, th there is a real debate there because um, the legislation as it stands isn't entirely consistent with the UN guiding principles in certain respects. Um, and, and that is creating concern for business and human rights experts, but also for those businesses that already have in place sophisticated human rights due diligence programs that meet the international standards. And so um, there is a, a part of the debate that's going on in the trilogue is uh, trying to assure those states that think that by uh, cutting away at um, some of the standards and, and modifying them, they will be acting in the best interests of business, that in fact that actually what is in the best interests of business is uh, consistency and certainty. With, uh, and you achieve that by aligning the legislation with the international standards that are already in place and that are already well understood. Of course. And finally, what advice would you give to people who aspire to specialise in sectors such as public international law, ESG, business and human rights? Um, so I think it's important to be nimble. Um, and to take advantage of opportunities as and when they arise. Uh, it's really difficult to, to chart a career in this space and to set out and say, um, this is how I'm going to get to, to my goal. And that's certainly not the way my career has developed. I've had various opportunities that have arisen at, at points in my career and I've just decided to take with them and uh, take right. them and, and, and to make the most of them. And, and I think that, uh, that's important, particularly in a sector which is relatively young. Um, and I suppose the other the other point I'd make is say yes to everything um, and take the opportunity to collaborate with people uh, and to produce content. Uh, people are really thirsty for information in this area, and it's quite easy to develop a niche where uh, you become someone who knows more than most other people do about a particular subject and then if you write about it uh you're active on social media you do as you're doing make podcasts uh, it's a really good way of establishing um, a presence and a, and a reputation in the field brilliant a big thank you to our guest peter hood for joining us today his expertise in public international law and business and human rights has provided us with invaluable insights if you'd like to learn more about Peter's work, 
You can find its articles in various reputable publications, including the Business and Human Rights Journal and the European Journal of International Law blog. And of course, thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on our website, omelas.podbean.com. Your feedback helps us continue to bring you meaningful conversations like the one you've just heard. Until next time, I'm Aramon Farmer, signing off. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Omelas Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.